What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we have a command performance from the uh, lead singer and songwriter for the formerly great band Granddaddy. The now Broken defunct. Up. Granddaddy. It pains us to say that. Indeed it does. Jason Lytle with Granddaddy made a bunch of really fine records, broke up the band, went out on a solo tour, and we were able to catch him for an interview and a performance here at the Jim and K. Maybe studio. And I gotta say, Jim, uh, Lytle solo, you really hear the beauty of those songs underneath all that orchestration on the Granddaddy album. Powerful stuff. Wonderful thing to hear. Later in the show, we are going to do a special joint, rare Unprecedented so far in the history here of Sound Opinions at Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, a double Desert Island jukebox, albeit on a sad occasion, the death of Arthur Lee. And uh, we're going to review the Tapes and Tapes album, but first, as always, we have some music news. I'm a big girl, I can handle myself, but if I get lonely, I'm going to need your help. Pay attention to me, I don't talk for my health. I want you on my team. So does everybody else. Baby, we can keep it on the low. Let your guard down, ain't nobody got it. If you were the girl, I know a place we can go. <laughs> Ah, yes, there is the number one single in America today. It is uh, Nelly Furtado, Greg Cott's favorite artist <laughs> with Promiscuous Girl. There is no ambiguity. And what the topic of that song is about, is there, Greg? Well, there's not. Um, sex! There's some major flirtation going on It's about on there. sex. Some flirtation. Don't get all romantic no, here. It's about it's sex. Not, you know, they're not doing it yet. See, that's what I'm saying. They're, they're talking about it. Yeah, they ain't doing it. They're about to. The point is, there's this study that's getting attention everywhere. The Rand Corporation has put out a study that's been written up in papers all across the country saying that songs depicting men as sex-driven studs, women as sex objects with explicit references to sex acts, they are more likely to trigger early sexual behavior in kids than those where sexual references are more subtle and veiled and and relationships appear committed as opposed to just, you know, the one night stand. I think right off the bat we have to look at who is the Rand Corporation? Gee, that sounds familiar. Yes. They're what you call a think tank. They're involved in child policy and civil and criminal justice and education, but of course most famous for years for defense studies throughout Mm -hmm. the Cold War and modern age military industrial complex studies. They have supported uh, the militarism of the U.S. foreign policy for decades, basically. That is, studies have been used to buttress what the U.S. is doing in foreign countries for, for decades. This is their thing. Now, this study goes on and on. Teens who said they listened to lots of music with degrading sexual messages, and I suppose degradation is really in the ear of the beholder, are almost twice as likely to start having intercourse or other sexual activities within the uh, year or two after they heard this music. The study says that they tracked 1,461 adolescents over three years and compared the music they said they listened to 
with self-reported sexual activity. So, you know, these kids could potentially be lying about their sexual activity. There's no way to uh, yeah, either, gauge that. Either inflating it or excluding it. But, but to me, Jim, this is the latest attempt by organizations who claim to protect the sanctity of childhood, attacking the record industry and the music in general. Let's go back to the congressional hearings in the 80s. Tipper Gore led the Parents Music Resource Center going after the likes of uh, Frank Zappa, the lead singer from Twisted Sister, Dee Snider. Now, 20 years ago, this sounded a little bit dubious, I think, because Tipper Gore, to my mind, was the worst of the music critics in this country in that she focused exclusively on the lyrical content of the music she was purporting to be corrupting the youth of America. Removing just the lyrics from the music and, and not really it was part of a package. Exactly. So we conducted our own survey of Non-scientific, the youth but... of America and uh, tested this theory. Okay, are you really paying attention to the music you listen to in terms of what it's saying lyrically? And uh, here's what some of these kids had to say. Um, my name's Sam. I'm from Homewood, Illinois. And I'm 16 years old. I really like Temperature by Sean Paul. <laughs> and I'm bossy, yeah. She brings all the boys to the yard and <laughs> she switches to the beat of the drum. I don't really like say, oh, the song's saying I should do it. Like, I've never heard anybody be like, well, they said it in the song. I think people just like the music. See me rolling, they hating, patrolling and trying to catch me riding. Eunice, I'm 14 and I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Chameleon there riding dirty. Basically, he's talking about um, the police always on his back about different things, the way he's driving his car, just being a reckless driver. I cannot listen to dirty stuff because it's just annoys me. But the beat is just, I like the beat. My name is Michael. I'm 13 years old, and I'm from All Gale Gardens. Um, I got to say, Lil Wayne, hustler music. I, I guess he talking about him and how he growing up in his life, him and his girlfriend, you know, how they get bring food to the table. It's, it's a really nice song. You just got to hear it. I guess he out there in the street hustling, trying to make money. CDs. He's a, he's a rapper, so of course he's selling CDs. My name is Michael Vick. I'm 14 and I'm from Chicago. My favorite song is, is uh, Young Jock. It's going down. Meet me in the trap. It's going down. Meet me in the mall. It's going down. Anyway, you meet me guaranteed to go down. My name's Jade, I'm 18, and I'm from Marion, Indiana. Um, I'm real into Panic at the Disco right now, um, Green Day. I do like buttons from Pussycat Dolls, though, too, and things like that, stuff you can dance to. It's pretty much all about sex, but it's just a cool beat, and that's why it's fun to listen to more so than the words. I actually can't understand half of what they're saying in most of their songs. I've taught her the morals that she needs to know right from wrong, and it doesn't matter what music she listens to. She knows what's right. 
All right. Those are our associate producers out there on the streets actually talking to some kids about songs they listen to and whether they care or even know what the lyrics are saying. Already, there are a bunch of pediatricians and child psychologists who are firing back. One that I saw quoted in a uh, Associated Press story, Yvonne Fulbright from New York. She's a sex researcher and author. She noted that it's a little dangerous to just pinpoint one thing as triggering uh, sexual activity in children. You have to look at everything that's going on in a young person's life. It's peer pressure. It's environment. It's their upbringing. You know, we say this as rock critics all the time. In the wake of what happened to Colin Combine, obviously a tragic incident. These kids are shooting their classmates. It wasn't Marilyn Manson that drove him to do it. Some troubled kid who kills him or herself hasn't been driven to do it by the Metallica song or the Ozzy Osbourne song. I mean, it's kind of, it kind of warms my heart in a way <laughs> that, you know, 60 years after rock and roll became a significant cultural force, it is still driving, uh, yeah. uh, you know, blue hairs wild. You know, this is the juvenile <laughs> delinquent scourge. There's going to be sex and, and riots in the streets. I'm, I'm glad it's still that dangerous. Yeah. It seems so odd that after 50 years, sex is still this big taboo in music lyrics. Like, Elvis Presley, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, you know, talking about some woman, you know. Uh, great balls of fire and screwing around you, Rudy, yeah. you know. I mean, they were all about sex. Uh, the Archie's Yummy Yummy, Got Love in My Tummy, and uh, Sugar Sugar. It is the so. number one topic in popular culture music for 50 years. Well, going back to the birth of the blues. Bessie you know. Smith was singing about right. sex. Robert Johnson was singing about not getting enough. And when it comes down to the kids got the right idea. It's a good beat and I can dance to it. Dick Clark was right, you know? And the, and the dancers on Dick Clark were right. It's, it's all about it's true. I can move my body to this stuff. You know, that song Buttons that was referenced, the Pussycat Doll song, my 14-year-old kid loves that song. But at the same time, when I asked her about the lyrics, what do they mean to you? She says, well, I really don't pay attention to them. I love the beat of the song. I think the lyrics are kind of dumb, to be honest with you. I could just hear her now. Dad, you're such a rock critic. Yeah, I mean... Who cares about lyrics? Exactly. <laughs> And, right, but I tell you what the next Rand study is going to be. Songs about drugs making kids take drugs. <laughs> like this tune, one of the runaway hits of the summer. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm, every day I'm, every day I'm hustling. 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 Every day I'm, every day I'm, every day I'm hustling. Sucker, snake you're tripping with. Yes, I'm the boss. 745, white on white, that's Rick Ross. I'm in the distribution. I'm like Atlantic. I got them pretty things flying across the Atlantic. I know Pablo, Pablo, Noriega, the real Noriega. He owe me a hundred favors. Every day I'm hustling. Every day I'm hustling. That is hustling. Jim, that's the number one ringtone of all time. I'm still trying to figure More out. More of those naughty kids are putting that yeah, on their cell phones than any other song in history. What is it that Rick Ross does? Rick Ross is He's a, hustling. Yes, hustling. He's hustling. Our, he, I think he should have made that a little more clear. <laughs> what is it you do, Well, Mr. he's Ross? got like about 19 songs on this record that basically say the same thing over and over again. The, 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 the artist is Rick Ross, a, uh, a big man from uh, Miami. The name of his debut album is Port of Miami. The reason we're talking about this in the news, it's one of the biggest selling records in America right now uh, as a result of the huge success of that single, Hustlin', that we just heard. 
and this is the most anticipated uh, hip-hop release in quite some time. Ross has been bubbling under in the Miami hip-hop scene for about a decade. Part of the slip-and-slide crew. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it's an important hip-hop scene. It is uh, one of the main conduits of club culture in America. You know, you think back about Luther Campbell. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> two live crew, yes, two live crew what guys, a genius. Taking that very explicit material, which was basically designed to be played over those big sound systems in the Miami clubs, mm-hmm. and turning it into a nationwide phenomenon, and we're seeing the same kind of thing here on about the same level of artistry. Indeed. I think Miami Jim is. It's got this sort of very romantic kind of decadence attached to it. I mean, you go back to a movie like Scarface, you know, with Al Pacino playing the role of the uh, the kingpin yes. drug dealer who uh, has this just incredibly violent finale to his life. Or or the recent remake of Miami Vice. Exactly, the Michael yeah. Mann movie over the summer. If you've seen that movie, you know exactly what Rick Ross is talking about, the kind of the romantic art deco kind of architecture, the booming music in the clubs, and lots of drugs flowing into the port of Miami. And Rick Ross has basically made an entire album about the cocaine trade in Miami. And I, it's not a cautionary tale, necessarily. It's celebratory. He's talking about, you know, hey, I'm right in the middle of this, and I'm making money. And, uh, hustling, hustling. I believe that's what he's doing. He's hustling. Cocaine has been a big, big topic in, uh, in, in hip-hop music once again in recent years. There have been uh, major hits uh, by groups like Clips and Young Jeezy. The amazing hip-hop artist Ghostface did an entire album called Fish Scale about cocaine, which was much more nuanced and much more like a, a novel or a, a piece of literature in the Film way it noir, approached it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Rick Ross, I think, is just sort of in a, in a very straightforward manner. It's not a lyrical record. I mean, when Ghostface was talking at length about the intricacies of measuring cocaine and yeah. mixing stuff and hiring an old woman to be the point person who's right. holding the drugs, that was fascinating crime novel kind of detail, reporter's yeah. eye view. Right. This guy's just talking like, I like cocaine, I like selling cocaine. Yes, indeed. Let's, let's hear a track, and we're going to talk about this very controversial record Port of Miami. Here is a track produced by the Miami producers Cool and Dre. Another one of the big tracks off the record. Guess what it's about? It's called Blow. It's on Sound Opinions. Way up in them Cali Hills, burning like the sunset. With an attitude, take it out of context. Riding with that big thing, looking like a bomb threat. Been Latin beard, Afghan in a bomb vest. Stranded on death row, Machiavelli's on a make box, kicks retro. She wanna gaze at the stars through a panoramic view, pulling out the job. Rick Rouse from the best in the flesh, getting blessed on the gym. It's a way to reflect, hard work pays off, I'm a boss, you can tell. By the bottles and the pill and the models that we share. Yeah. I'm in the real estate and the real estate of mine. We came from trigger play, killing before a dime. I'm trying to chill a day, I got a million on my mind. Dice in my hand, one roll, I blow your mind. Designer jeans in a handful of dough. Bottle of that rose, pass me some more. I got more God, more God, more flow, more flow, more money, please, more. That was Blow from the debut album by Rick Ross, Port of Miami. Greg, a, a nice setup. 
this is this is sheer and utter crap. This album. This is worse than the remake of Miami Vice. There's just no need for this. If I never hear another hip hop song again about the joys, superficially, of selling cocaine, it's going to be too soon. I do think the great art can still be made about the drug trade. We talked about that Ghostface album. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the equivalent of Jim Thompson or Iceberg Slim. There is artistry to be made in in the observations of of the realities, the nitty gritty, uh, and the full romance of selling drugs. I think that what Rick Ross is traveling in is just is is this fake long since played idea of the drug dealing life as a romantic thing. It's not. It's something that claims people's lives and futures and and gets them uh, thrown in jail for half a century or worse claims their lives. But the thing is again it it comes down to where is this meant to be played? Is this meant to be listened to on headphones and sort of parsed for its lyrical content? I think no. It works wonders in clubs. It comes on in clubs, and it's over that loud sound system. And he's got this kind of, if you don't really listen to what he's saying, that authoritative kind of molasses flow that he has, it's very kind of sexy and seductive. He actually does try to sing one song here uh, about a, a romantic tryst. The production on this record is pretty astonishing. I mean, if you hear it at a club, those really heavy bass tones, Miami is celebrated for that bounce sound, that bass sound. It it basically invented that super subterranean low-end sound. (laughs) The organ over the top, there's definitely an atmosphere being created here. But in terms of artistry... None of that's There's nothing new, though, here. Either. There's nothing uh, it, here yeah. that, you know, has not been said before. Go back to Ice-T and the OG, things like that, who actually did it really well, talking yeah. about the hustling lifestyle and talking about the full expanse of it. Rick Ross is talking about this strictly as a business, and he's talking about it as a business that he wants to continue doing. Well, so, and I agree. You know, I, you know, there are charms to be had in those grooves. Scott Storch and Cool and Dre, fine, but, but they're not new. We have heard that before. They have been done better elsewhere. It's the hip-hop equivalent of bubblegum. Lowest common denominator, just catchy throwaway. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking about this in the news context because it did appear on the top of the charts, and it is going to be this is sure also to be one of those controversial albums. I mean, it's almost beneath rating it, but we rate everything on the Sound Opinions patented scale of buy it, burn it, trash it. I'm I'm sorry, this is a trash it record. Even if you like this single hustling, and Blow is a a convincing song too, there's no reason for you to buy this album. It's one of those songs that you need to hear at a club. So go visit a club, you're sure to hear it. Some DJ and any club in America is probably going to be playing Hustlin' at some time during the night. That's where you need to hear this song. You don't need to own this record. Definitely a trash it. Uh, That's a double trash it on Rick Ross, Port of Miami from Greg and myself. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to Jason Lytle, former leader of Granddaddy. He's going to perform some songs solo and talk about the demise of his band on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. In truth I say
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're sitting here with Jason Lytle, formerly of Granddaddy. Jason, does it feel weird to hear formerly of Granddaddy attached to your name? It feels weird that I have to hear everybody else hear it, but I knew it one day it was going to come to an end, as did the rest of the band. So it's just, we're here, we're living it right now, so I'm just getting used to it myself, though. Well, I don't know, Greg, if formerly is the right way to put it. I mean, with Granddaddy, Jason spearheaded four of the best albums of the 90s. And you are, in fact, touring. And the the thousands. And the thousands. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. the new millennium and the 90s. And uh, the fourth, just like The Family Cat, is a Granddaddy record. It's the last one the band made as a band, but you're out supporting it. I mean, you're considering this a tour, kind of supporting it, though it's a solo acoustic tour, right? Yeah, although I did have no intention of doing this, and... This little tour that I'm doing is such a departure from what touring became with Granddaddy that that it's kind of made it okay. Yeah, because we talked in May when the album was coming out, and you you had no notion of going on the road at that point. Yeah, and um, we're literally, you know, we have no hotels booked. The three of us are driving in a van. (laughs) It's me and Rusty Mm -hmm. are playing together on stage, and Nick Freitas is opening up for us, and we're basically just winging it like really dirty and just talking and laughing and listening to music and well greg's got a really nice big house with a lot of floor space if you guys need to crash tonight (laughs) oh Oh, what a coincidence (laughs) (laughs) we were just on that subject before we walked into the i mean that does take it back to the indie rock origins of when you started out i mean you you know you'd go across the country you're in a van and and we were hoping we're going to meet some friends tonight who are going to offer a floor for us to sleep on right that's how it's been going i mean even before the band i was kind of like a dirty traveling skateboarder you know sleeping on floors and in parking lots and in parks and stuff so it's I had plenty of training before that and it almost became even more frustrating when when the band started getting you know popular and the accommodations got a lot better I just I've started getting further and further removed from that sort of rawness yeah well you were a heavy duty touring band there was a tour you did with Elliot Smith you were opening for him, essentially, but at the same time playing a really generous set that was really well-received, and that seemed to be a perfect audience for you guys to be reaching. But for whatever reason, it seemed like just the routine of it got to be just wore you guys out, and that's kind of, it seemed to me, like the genesis of where this band ended was just the road trips just became too grueling for you guys, it seemed like. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wish all of the tours would have been like that Elliott Smith tour. Mm-hmm. There were some bad decisions that were made by some people involved with the band and you know some of them by the band members themselves but uh it was just the the expectation of like okay crank out an album now rehearse that album and go on tour and just tour until it's just i don't know it just it kind of it kind of ran its course although i mean for me in particular you know i spend a lot of time by myself when i'm at home and i'm kind of i kind of require a lot of time alone and I just, it takes me a while to figure things out. And it's just, there's no time to figure things out when you're on tour. It's just go, 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 go. And then, God forbid, you start figuring in substances and alcohol and chemicals and just whatever you can do to keep up with the pace. And it's just, it's just, it's crazy. You talk about the size of the touring and the overhead and people, you know, I can only imagine how many people get paid on a tour like that. You know, tour managers and uh, road crew and you know, booking agent, and every night get, everybody's getting a slice of a, a, a shrinking pie, I would imagine, unless you're like the Rolling Stones. Yeah, it was really sad for the band, you know. You come home after all of that, and people went home 
broke and we're, we weren't like a huge merchandise selling band either so considering that all these people who are surrounding the band were going home you know with this you know with their pockets full and but these are like great people that we work with so we felt good about paying them but i don't know you put in and you put in you put in and then like you get a little bit out the shows were good but having to justify it you know and pay your rent and ask yourself as a man who's growing up you know should i continue doing this is this mm. in my best interest and in the best interest of you know the people that i'm you know looking out for it's just it kind of was only pointing in one direction because there was nobody offering any solutions to saving our sinking ship you know but now <laughs> you've been freed i mean when you were a young skateboarder you loved skateboarding you probably never thought i want skateboard to be my life right it was something you did for fun yeah, and now you can yeah. treat music that way again right yeah yeah yes so it's good <laughs> so less than awake i think our chat with uh, jason lytle should be a celebration absolutely because he's not going to stop giving us music in fact you're going <laughs> to play some songs why don't we play a tune okay and tell us what you want to do and, and where it came from is it going to be something from the album or what are you going to do yeah this is a uh, obviously a stripped down version of a song on the album, the new album. Uh, this song is called Disconnecty. Okay. Now, 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 Jason, is this how the songs would kind of start when you would... Because people aren't familiar with Granddaddy. You know, the, the songs could be fairly elaborately arranged and, and very beautiful, and there's dense layers of sound and these strange keyboards and rhythms, and let's pretend we're the guys in Granddaddy. This is how we'd first hear the song? Yeah, this album in particular, I was... I have like I have at home a four track version of the whole album, so it was, mm. it was really important for me to know that the songs were kind of standing on their own on this album in particular. You know, mm-hmm. although it's fun to have like the little spacey freak out sections, but I'm still a fan of you know storytelling and short songs and being concise. And uh, we've been concentrating on a lot of those in this this little tour. You know, the intimate setting because the stories tend to come across better in this configuration sure sure mm-hmm. okay all right let's hear it disconnecty from the uh granddaddy record dearest mom your yearling son has sent a message through he's disconnected but he still
Wow, cool. Great stuff. Disconnecty uh, by Jason Lytle. That's all you need to know about Granddaddy right there. At the base of all those songs, at the core of all those songs, great melody, a great song, and yet you were compelled, obsessed maybe, <laughs> compulsive about, <laughs> you know, let's put all this great wonderful studio treatments on top of it layers and layers of uh, of sound as well so how did that start where you made the transition from that to wanting to do these wonderful orchestrated songs on the records i'm glad you mentioned that because even when i was a little kid my dad uh remarried and he remarried a dj and she had this huge record collection and Included in that record collection happened to be a bunch of ELO. So <laughs> I became really obsessed with listening to these albums. And um, it just seemed like there was a selflessness. You know, it was like it was like making music for people, making music that people were really going to enjoy. You know, and if you could combine songs that meant a lot to you and sort of like being a servant to the listeners, you know, making them as enjoyable as a listening experience as possible, somehow even like, Back then when I was a little kid, I I recognized that and I really appreciated it. And it sort of planted this little seed as like a, a goal. I love the idea of making songs and telling stories, but I think I was just as affected by, by sound and like the journey, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, and Granddaddy made albums that were a sonic voyage. You know, they took you from <laughs> one place to another. But but you guys came together in Modesto, California. And uh, last time I was writing about you, I was just tempted. I always get confused geography-wise because it's such a weird – I mean, it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere in the state of California. I looked it up on the web. The motto of Modesto is the city of water, wealth, contentment, and health. <laughs> and it really – I mean, for, from the picture I get of this place just through your songs, it's really kind of like strip mall hell nowhereville. And yeah. part of part of your writing has always been the contrast of that kind of modern, ugly rootlessness with something deeper. I mean, I want to paint you as a nature hippie kid, but well, well the natural beauty around Modesto is pretty awe-inspiring. I mean, having driven in that area, yeah, it seems like. And I kind of have a theory about that too, because you would look on a map and see what it's surrounded by, and go, "Wow, you know, it looks like a you know great place to redwoods and be in the middle of everything." But it's you would almost be better being smack dab in the middle of Iowa where it's just it's pointless to even try to do any of these things because it's even worse being in Modesto because not only is it just far enough away to not do it, but you can still see it in the distance. So it kind of it makes you feel like that much of a turd for <laughs> for be, for being lazy and unmotivated and yeah. just and f- there's something kind of there's like a sad sort of heavy gravity that exists there in the first place that and it's in a valley so i kind of also have this idea of like people trying to get out of the valley and just like rolling back sliding down. back yes, mm-hmm. exactly. so it was not really the city of water wealth contentment and health and they they have one of those arches too in the main street water wealth contentment health written on it but <laughs> like the, the meth used to be sort of squeeze in there somewhere too but somebody water well contentment health and meth (laughs) somebody climbed up and stole it (laughs) some dysfunctionality going on there seriously that's great but when granddaddy came together were these uh were these friends of yours i mean did you actually want to put together a band or did the band form out of what were just the people you were you were hanging out with yeah it was literally the furthest thing from classified ads it was just I was doing four tracking by myself, and I was actually at the time I was frequenting the skate park, and Aaron, the drummer, worked there, and I found out that 
he was a drummer. So I started. And the weird thing about Tim, I've known Tim like way longer before a band even. We used to skate like a long time ago when we were, you know, in high school. It was just uh, literally like, okay, you play this, you play that. You know, we just we just knew each other and we were friends. And it was it was more important for me to be around people that I was comfortable with. And it was the concept of like, you know, putting together this concocted band that was going to do things. Going to get the best keyboardist we can get. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, didn't really exist back then and it wasn't really Mm. the case. But you must have had, you had all this music in your head. Was it ever frustrating getting the guys to play what was up up in that brain of yours and getting that to be realized on the stage? It was really frustrating, but at the same time, that's the part that I have the hardest time explaining to people because on one hand, it could sound like I mean, I was really apologetic from the beginning. I didn't want to be... I've always felt like I was going to come off as, like, a fast food restaurant manager of, like, bossing, you know, my <laughs> these guys around. I didn't want that, you know. But from the get-go, I was the captain of the ship, but, you know, the ship couldn't have been, op- been operated unless everybody was as good at what they were doing, you know, mm-hmm. as they were. And as the band evolved and, and as the years went on, you know, people's tasks became a lot clearer and and we did function as like a band it's just i kind of held the position of you know the songwriter and arranger and yeah blah 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 are the other guys disappointed at the way it kind of unraveled or was it time for everybody no i think there's a few guys who would have been okay with it just going on until forever but it never ended for me you know just the recording and the tour preparation and the tours and the press and then like getting home and immediately having to like jump back into all that stuff again it just and i'm actually the first one to not really know my own limits and i just i I was tapped out Hmm. on that sad note let's uh (laughs) let's have another song jason (laughs) well many of the songs here are kind of about being tapped out you know but also there's this optimism i mean you you played disconnecty and you know i'm okay now to fly on my own yeah I mean, is that kind of a prescient line? Uh, now I'm like analyzing the lyrics of the song that I'm thinking about doing. And just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Screw it. I'm going to do it anyways. <clears throat> uh, this one is called Jeez Louise. Oh. Now, how, how autobiographical is this? Before we dive in. Because yeah. this is about a kid who's having a tryst at a motel. And things start to get weird. So far, so true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be true of somebody else. It might not be. And, uh-huh. and uh, what made you write this song? It was when I realized my first two long-term relationships, both of their middle names were Louise, and both their moms disliked me a lot. Mm. And let's see. Was there a motel involved? Yeah, yeah, there was. There was. <laughs> and it was, it was one of those situations, too, you know, where you get the friends to lie for the other friends. And yeah. I'd coordinated this little rendezvous, shoulder tapped. You know, everything was all aligned and perfect. I was, like, probably, like, sitting in my boxer shorts going, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know, I feel so grown up. But like, you know, turning on the TV and the phone rang. And I just kind of laughed at myself going, well, that'd be pretty funny if it was actually her mom. And it was. Wow. <laughs> Oh, man. It's like the opposite of boy. boy, boy, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise, indeed. Oh, man, it's great. Remember Jeez Louise and all the bedroom window screens thrown away for our teenage. 
Modesto in And all of a sudden your mom crashed in And she said, no he's not the one for you Yeah, your mom, she always hated me Grab your keys, your clothes, your shoes Jeez Louise, you should have avoided me Jason Lytle, Jeez Louise, on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I mean, now you're, you're living in Montana now. You've traded California for Montana, and you are writing. So are we going to see something else? Yeah, I'm actually going to put the studio together, too. And that, that usually kind of starts lighting some fires when I start to see all the gear click on and, mm-hmm. you know, the room warm up. So, I mean, it's nothing I'm really – I'm just going to – I'm just taking it as it comes, yeah. literally. You know, it was a big deal for me to to leave California and leave a lot of people and, you know, memories and all that stuff behind. I mean, it's still there, but it's just I just needed to switch things up. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to um, being in, you know, my new surroundings, which are incredible and, you know, beautiful and all that stuff and just clearing my head and figuring some crap out and making some songs yeah he just doesn't he look like a man now who has no pressure anymore yeah he's enjoying great life man he got me on a good day (laughs) well you know it's a great (laughs) album and and we're glad that that granddaddy is we're happy you're touring behind it i mean granddaddy may have changed but now it's on to whatever jason lytle's going to give us and that's great because it's uh we love these albums and we've always been in your corner and we can't wait to hear what you're going to give us next well thank you very much you know and uh and love to my band and and it was it was a good run 
Well, goodbye, Jason Lytle. It's been an absolute pleasure having you come back. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, not a bad way to spend a day off. Jason Lytle uh, also performed one other song for us. Believe it or not, a Sheryl Crow song. You're going to be able to hear that on our website, soundopinions.org. You're also going to be able to see it, a Sound Opinions first. We've got video of this live performance by Jason Lytle. Coming up after a break, we're going to talk about the new album from Minneapolis's own Tapes and Tapes, and we'll have a uh, special Desert Island jukebox homage to Arthur Lee of Love on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Listening to a song called Crazy Eight on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. It's from the debut album from a Minneapolis band called Tapes and Tapes. The album is called The Loon. It actually came out some time ago independently, but just was issued last week on XL Recordings. Greg, this is another one of those stories that we love here on Sound Opinions and find hugely inspirational. We had the uh, New York New Wave of New Wave revival band Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah in the studio perform with us a couple of months back. They have become nationally famous for floating their music on the net, eventually becoming this huge explosive buzz band. Tapes and Tapes story is very similar, and I think they're the most exciting band to come out of the Twin Cities in years. There have been contenders from Minneapolis. Minneapolis kind of has this, you know, they call Chicago the second city. And, and I'm saying this with love, Minneapolis. Keep this in mind. I lived there twice for several years at a time. It, it's got this kind of second city syndrome, you know. Bands will become huge in Minneapolis but never get beyond the borders of St. Paul. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind. You know, Chicago's seven and a half hours away. They won't even make it here to play. Tapes and Tapes, I think, were really aggressive in floating their music out there. And it's gotten them attention. It's gotten them signed. It got them... Uh, I I, well, the story that, that Josh Greer told at the Pitchfork Music Festival a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. They're playing in front of 19,000 people in the park at this big outdoor music festival. The year before, he was standing in the crowd. He <laughs> bought a ticket. He drove from Minneapolis and stayed on friends' floors here to see the bands. Never thought that 
a year later, he would be on stage and 19,000 people would be psyched to see his performance. I think they're a really good band trying something interesting. You know, these guys came out of the context, Greg, of a basement situation, recording with a four-track recorder and the computer and just piling up, according to what Greer told me, tapes and tapes full of stupid blank blank. <laughs> so they were laughing at themselves a little bit. I think that they had a formula, but it was not formulaic. Like a lot of bands right now, including Clap Your Hands, they were turning to that early New Wave era for inspiration in terms of the propulsive rhythms and the kind of more stripped-down sound. But they also were looking at the big guitar bands of the early alternative era. My Bloody Valentine, Pixies, Dinosaur Jr. All of that went into the mix after a uh, self-titled EP and then this full album, The Loon, which is now finally widely available in America as a legitimate release. Let's hear a tune. Uh, this, this song, this is a song called The Iliad. <laughs> what a grand, grand sweeping kind of idea they have here. Let's listen to this and then we'll give our thoughts on the actual music. So this is Tapes and Tapes, The Iliad from the album The Loon on Sound Opinions. That's the Iliad from Tapes and Tapes, uh, debut record, The Loon. Jim, I initially found myself thinking, well, what's going to be the fuss about, you know, just a, a basic rock combo, guitar, bass, drums, what new can be said with that? They're not really saying anything new, but I like the way they're saying it. This is a very accomplished band. Josh Greer, I think, is the key here in terms of there's a sense of personality here. These guys aren't studio mavens per se and in, in that they're trying to do anything really elaborate with these recordings but Greer has got a personality there's been some really kind of unfounded comparisons to uh, Steve Malcolmus of Pavement for some reason here I don't hear that at all mm. uh, I, I go back another 10 years I, I'd go to the young Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes uh. he reminds me more of that sort of Midwestern a smart kid he's read a few books but he's still got those hormones jumping around you know <laughs> and he sounds a little agitated and he sounds a little bit you know, frazzled by things. I like the fact that Greer sort of wears his feelings on his sleeve a little bit. There's yeah. a little jitter in his voice. There's a little angsty edge to it. He's not detached from the subject matter at all. Even the lyrics may be a little elliptical. You may not be able to figure out exactly what he's talking about. It's clear that this guy is going through some travails, and he's sort of laying it out in a very passionate way on these songs. The other thing is, this is a, this is a tough little band. I tip my hat to Jeremy Hansen, the drummer in this band. Yeah. I think the songs have a very taught 
kind of rhythmic feel. They are not conventional rhythms by any sense of the, of the word. The harmonies are intricate and well thought out. You know, I think Greer is bringing the whole package here. The, the songs are there. The personality is there. For that reason, I think here's a, you know, your standard issue, kind of low-budget indie rock record, guitar, bass, and drums that sort of transcends all the cliches that have sort of been piled up on that. It's almost as if you're combining kind of like, to go back to the Minneapolis indie rock heyday, the, the best elements of the replacements with the best arty elements of Husker Du. Although this band isn't nearly as aggressive, there is an edge live that isn't there on the loon. By the way, uh, the state bird of Minneapolis. Oh, there the we loon. go. Okay. Although Greer told me he didn't know that. I, 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 <laughs> Come I on. It is, I mean, what a <laughs> Minneapolis kind of record, though. I don't know. I, I think there's a really exciting debut that grows on you after you see the band live, and it's going to be really interesting to see where they go. I think it's a buy it record. It's, it's a, a real treat to discover it. I'm with you. I think it's a buy it record as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. All right, every week one of us goes to a desert island, pops a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and emerges with a record they cannot live without. Today, Jim and I are both going to the desert island because, uh, frankly, we love this band so much. The band is Love. The founding member of Love, Arthur Lee, died last week at age 61. Lee was really the mastermind behind the band, uh, the primary songwriter, the lyricist, uh, the lead singer, and a truly one of the most important figures in the Los Angeles uh, rock scene of the mid-60s. In the Sunset Strip era, at the height of that era, when bands like uh, Buffalo Springfield and The Birds and The Doors were traipsing around L.A. and making a national name for themselves... Everybody kind of wanted to be Arthur Lee. I mean, the Doors really he, he admired was, this guy. He was cool. You know, he's born in Memphis. He was an African-American. You know, we tend to think of one great psychedelic African-American guitarist, songwriter in that era, of course, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix looked up to Arthur yes. Lee. And Hendrix later played on some of Lee's later love albums. The guy was a pioneer in many ways, but he was unheralded, partly because he was kind of his own worst enemy. Well, you mentioned unheralded, Jim, and I think it's a very valid point. Uh, we were both just covering the uh, big Lollapalooza concert in Chicago over the weekend. Grant Park just dominated the entire expanse. Of I thought we were going to get through the whole lakefront show downtown. without mentioning that, because that, uh, we were both rather underwhelmed. Well, but, uh, but we went through this entire festival, and, and very few mentioned of Arthur Lee, and it, it kind of uh, it saddened me to see that more bands were not acknowledging that Arthur Lee had passed uh, literally a day before the festival began. Uh, Patti Smith, I think, uh, made a little appearance there, mentioned him. And Calexico actually performed one of his songs oh, uh, on go. stage. We dropped the, the phrase orc pop from time to time, orchestral pop. I think there's been a, a huge resurgence of that. We had Colin Malloy from the Decemberists on, the Arcade Fire, bands like the Polyphonic Spree. There's been dozens of groups in the indie rock underground that have been incorporating a lot of orchestral instrumentation. And they've been getting their cue not from the Beatles of Sgt. Pepper's, but uh, basically from two albums from uh, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys and from Arthur Lee's Forever Changes. Lee had been out there on the road again at one point touring with an orchestra playing 
forever changes in its entirety. It's kind of sad. You know, he's sometimes linked up there with Sid Barrett, who also recently died, and Rocky Erickson and Brian Wilson to some extent as a uh, acid casualty or somebody who who, uh, dropped out after cracking up. But, you know, Love made three albums that were usually influential in the mid to late 60s, and then Lee continued for a time with a, a very different version of the band until he dropped out of the scene. He was fairly obscure for many years. He was just trying to come back when he wound up getting imprisoned on felony charges for waving a gun around at a neighbor, but it was part of the California Three Strikes You're Out right. thing. He'd had a couple of stupid drug and uh, just dumb things. You know, you don't mm-hmm. wave a gun at your neighbor, right? You know? No. And then, uh, you know, did some time in jail. So, six years. Uh, six years. And then he came out and he toured two fairly extensive tours of America mm-hmm. and, and Europe playing the one tour, All of Forever Changes, and the other tour, just his greatest hits, with some young acolytes and, and was really credible and really great. And he felt vindicated. I, I spoke to him and he, and he really felt like this, he finally had a chance to present Forever Changes, that great concept work from the 60s, the way it was meant to be heard in a live setting. But I had a chance to uh, speak to Lee a few years ago on the eve of that uh, comeback tour in 2003 where he did perform Forever Changes and he talked about how he went from writing these kind of very stripped down songs uh, and and created this vast concept work that was Forever Changes. I I think in addition to the orchestration and and just the beauty of the arrangements on Forever Changes, the, the thing that strikes me about it, Jim, is just the the pointedness of the lyrics. I mean, yeah. he was the darkest of all the L.A. poet-slash-singers of the time. He was, he was talking no about, no. Yeah. It was not flower power for <laughs> Arthur. He was a black man working away through the society that was, you know, in the middle of some serious race riots yeah. at that time. So this lyric, this album was steeped in some really dark imagery in contrast to the beauty of the arrangement, which I think is one of its enduring strengths. Absolutely, and that's where I'm going to go for my particular song uh, to pay tribute to Arthur Lee. I think that the song that struck me the most on Forever Changes when I first heard it, and which resonated even more after I saw Love perform the album in 2003, is the song The Red Telephone. He had just come out of this six-year stint in federal prison. (laughs) And uh, here is this song that is this kind of mini-symphony on an overall symphonic album. He seems to be railing against some sort of Orwellian world where these unnamed forces are trying to stamp out your individuality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, here he is singing, They're locking him up today. They're throwing away the key. I wonder who it'll be tomorrow, you or me. I can't think of any better way to remember Arthur Lee. There are three albums you need to own, kids. (laughs) The, The first album, Love. The second album, Da Capo. And by all means, Forever Changes. This is the red telephone from that album on Sound Opinions. Sitting on a hillside Watching all the people die I feel much better on the other side Of the road I believe in man Why? Because it is so quick I don't need power when I'm hypnotized Look in my eyes What are you seeing? I 
was the red telephone from love jim and i doing double duty this week on a desert island jukebox pick with a tribute to love and and the late arthur lee who died at age 61 here's a another band we can appreciate while they're here jim yes. still in their heyday uh, alive I and think. well mission of burma we have them live in the studio next week for an interview and a performance cables were melting in the studio yeah. Plus, in a couple of weeks, we are going to do a rare Sound Opinions show. We love to do it. Songs that we are ashamed to admit that we like, that we know intellectually we should not like. It's called Guilty Pleasures, and we love to involve the listeners. So if you have tunes that qualify as Guilty Pleasures, give us an email at interact at soundopinions.org, and we may uh, be able to talk to you on the phone and include you in the show. Uh, we got some thank yous to say, Greg, as always, on the way out. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel, our producer, was out this week, but we're wishing him well and get well soon, Matt. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. Dino Armiros gives us legal assistance. Joe Dassault gives us technical help. Andrew Mohammed and Mary Gaffney engineered uh, Jason Lytle here in the studio. And Jim Russell over at American Public Media is the hustling man. Thanks for listening. Thank you.